Well, just a few years ago, when I was a seminary student here, uh, my evangelism professor was a legend named Dr. Bob Tuttle. He was famous for literally practicing what he preached, and he still does. He is one of those people who is a gifted personal evangelist. He's able to start a conversation about Jesus with just about anyone, just about anywhere. And woe to the unconverted person who sat next to Dr. Tuttle on an airplane. <laughs> After that long flight, they would likely disembark saved and spirit-filled. Legend has it that he once led a TSA agent to Christ in the time it took just to go through security. <laughs> and as a pastor, Dr. Tuttle told us early in his years, he was once appointed to a beautiful but mostly empty church in a suburban town. The church had gorgeous architecture, but it was past its heyday with an empty and echoing sanctuary that just happened to be the ideal environment for wedding services. Couples from all over would drive to meet with him to inquire about having their wedding there. And Dr. Tuttle was not content to play chaplain to a dying church, one that was running off the money that they made as a wedding chapel but sat mostly empty on Sundays. As many pastors do, he would meet with each couple before their wedding, uh, only he didn't exactly have the typical premarital conversation, wedding planning, meet and greet with couples. Instead, he asked them some very pointed questions. Son, he would ask the groom, what is the most important thing in your life? Young lady, he would ask the bride, what is the most important thing in your life? And predictably, the blushing bride would lower her eyelashes, and look over at the groom and say, he is. <laughs> and the groom, if he was smart, would gaze lovingly over at the bride and say, she is. And then Dr. Tuttle would say, don't do that. <laughs> don't you do that. She is going to make a wonderful wife, but she makes a terrible God. He is going to make a wonderful husband, but he makes a terrible God. And then he would share with them about having the one true God as the God at the center of their marriage would actually help it to thrive and grow and help them to love each other well. Incidentally, God used those weddings and those blunt conversations to grow that church. By the end of Dr. Tuttle's time appointed there, that church was full of newlywed couples who were faithful followers of Jesus. It is amazing how humans can make an idol out of just about anything. John Calvin said, am I, am I allowed to quote John Calvin? <laughs> first, first week of the semester, you, th you thought I was going to say John Wesley said. John Calvin said famously, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And the thing about idols is that they all fail. All idols fail us, even if they start out as something wonderful. 
as Dr. Tuttle knew and reminded people, our best gifts from God are the ones that are most prone to become our idols. When put on a throne not meant for them, all idols will fall under the pressure. And our idols, well, they're a little harder to identify today than they were in biblical times when they were made from wood or metal and set up in an altar. It's a little harder to see what our idol factories are churning out day after day. Well, Jeremiah has a word to help us with that. Jeremiah 2 says in God's voice, my people have committed two sins. They have turned away from me the spring of living water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns, cracked cisterns that hold no water. Well, what does cistern language have to do with all this idol talk? I'm glad you asked. Cisterns were an ancient tool developed for people to survive when they didn't live near a source of fresh water. People would dig cisterns to capture the the runoff from rainwater, and the water would literally run through the surrounding countryside or down the streets, picking up on its way all manner of dirt and refuse and excrement. But once the water was trapped in a cistern, it would settle, and the more solid matter would sink to the bottom and the, you know, clearer water would float to the top. Sounds totally hygienic to me. And that was all good until the dry season when the cisterns got lower and lower and the water got down to, well, the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, and you found yourself drinking from the dregs. Cisterns were a technology developed that it helped the Israelites survive. It enabled them to to thrive in countryside that they wouldn't have been able to without fresh water. Some of them might have been small, like a pool for a single family, some large enough to sustain an entire community. Uh, The one uh, cistern at Masada held millions of gallons, but it was in a dry region, and so uh, they had to cart the water there, donkey load by donkey load. I think we have a picture of the cistern that's from Herod's fortress near Bethlehem. Um, Dr. Stone shared this picture with me. Our resident Indiana Jones brought this back. Um, It's so fun when you preach from an Old Testament passage and the whole Old Testament faculty shows up. Hi, good to see you. Nice to see you. Well, I'll take notes later. Uh, The people who dug these cisterns, you could just see how deep that is, how maybe how it could supply a whole fortress with water if you filled that up. And the people who needed cisterns were the ones who didn't live near a spring. They didn't live near a fresh source. The spring was the fresh source of water. No settling, no dregs, just something welling up with clean and clear and tasty water. So here's the question that Jeremiah brings to us. Who in their right mind has a spring but drinks from a cistern? Who in the world would dig when they have water flowing on their land, a total gift that you did not earn or dig, just existing, welling up on your property? Who would turn away from that and do the back breaking work of digging their own cistern. My people, Jeremiah says, have turned away from me the spring of living water, 
and have dug for themselves cisterns, not even good ones, cracked cisterns, and all cisterns leak eventually. Why are they drinking from the dregs? Who does that? Well, we do. <laughs> it's a story that is as old as Eden. Why would Eve and Adam, when God had offered the fruit of every other tree and a close relationship with himself, turn away and take the fruit of the one forbidden tree and the curse of isolation from God? Why would David, a man after God's own heart, elevated from boyhood shepherd to the greatest king of God's people, hold the kingdom and the favor of God in his hands and go out on the roof looking for love in all the wrong places? Why would Nicodemus meet the light of the world under the cover of darkness, protecting his career and reputation instead of following Jesus? What causes Judas to betray, Peter to deny, after being personally taught and walking with Jesus himself for years? Why? Why would someone look at a spring and dig a cistern? Jeremiah says, well, first, we stop drinking from the spring. First, we turn away. First, we look away from God's provision, and then we start to get thirsty. And then we look for other sources, and we start digging. Our idol factories, they don't just make idols out of thin air. Usually, we start with the gifts of God right in front of us, transforming something that was a good gift into something that we think we need to survive or to be happy or to be complete or whole, a good gift from God. And yet, we begin elevating it as the most important thing. It's when we feel that we are most blessed that we should pray to God to guard our hearts because the rainy season is a dangerous season sometimes since having abundance can often make us forget where the abundance came from in the first place. Watchman Nee was a famous Christian, a Chinese Christian born into very tough circumstances in 1903, and his dedication won many to Christ. Many people followed Christ because of him, but he also endured great hardships, and he died in prison for his faith. Watchman Nee described the source of his contentment in this way. He said, because of our proneness to look at the bucket and forget the fountain, God has frequently to change his means of supply to fix, keep our eyes fixed on the source. When I begin to look at those gifts around me, the people, the provision, the blessings, the things God has given me, when I begin to see them as just buckets, they're just holding the gifts of God, the living water coming from the spring. It helps me remember that buckets are not gods to be worshipped or elevated or guarded or something to be worried or anxious about because it's God that's the source of the blessing and not them. Now, the dry season can be dangerous too. I mean, that's when the cisterns run out and you find yourself drinking from the dregs at the bottom, you, you may find yourself even staring longingly into your neighbor's cistern, wondering why it is they seem to have enough when you're swallowing the silt. 
jealousy may set in, or comparison, or a, a feeling of competition. Why do I sit in this class and everyone else seems to know all about this subject, but not me? It's when we feel most dry and neglected that we start digging. We start trying to make life work in our own strength, digging harder and deeper into the things we are most prone to look to when God seems silent or when we get scared. Why do you dig a cistern when you have a spring? It's because that you're scared that the spring won't be eternal, might not last, might not provide when you need it most. Our trust in God gives out way before the spring ever does, and we start digging and looking into other things for our help and hope. I wonder, I wonder what our faith life would be like if we just came to expect that it would have both rainy and dry seasons. If when we faced some kind of drought spiritually, and, and it does happen to all of us, especially those in vocational ministry, especially and often during your time at Asbury. When those seasons of drought come upon us, what if we just normalized that there would be some seasons of doubt and lament and struggle? Instead of thinking there's something wrong with us or something wrong with God, what would it be like to approach our faith like farmers, knowing that the seasons are cyclical but God is constant, hunkering down for the hard times and then celebrating the gifts of the good ones. Jesus had a habit of going looking for people who were in dry seasons. He had this sense of finding the drought, and it must have given him such a joy to look into people's eyes and then usher in a whole new season for them, a blessing and pouring out. I can imagine Jesus' joy to go looking for those people in pain and bringing healing, finding those who were tormented and bringing release, searching for the lonely and bringing community. It's like Jesus loved going around bringing rain to dry crops and sitting back and watching them spring to life. One of the people that Jesus found in her driest place was ironically at a well. And a well is a mostly stable water source, of course, but it's one where you do the hard work. It's not a spring, one that gives to you. It's one you have to pull from, one where it's your hard work that brings the water to the surface, your own effort, your striving that makes the water buried deep underground come up one heavy bucket at a time, supplied by your own elbow grease. And this woman had, of course, been doing the same thing in her private life, too. Her personal life was one of turning from one empty cistern to the next, finding life and love in one man's arms after another after another. And when one would dry up, she would go digging somewhere else. It was to this woman that Jesus said, everyone who drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. No need to dig. 
No need to strive and make it all happen yourself. No lugging water one donkey load at a time. No need pulling arm over arm, working against gravity to force life into the way you want it to be. It's me, Jesus said. I am the spring. I am the living water. I will be welling up in you, pouring out, not just with everything you need, but overflowing to other people. This, this is the picture Jesus wants us to connect with. The blessings of God pouring forth, not us digging a hole of our own effort and pulling them up out of gravity, but the free-flowing grace of God, a spring of living water springing up on your property. It's there already, Jesus says. You didn't put it there, I did. Now, it's not that all digging is bad. I mean, you're going to work hard here at Asbury. There are going to be things that you strive for. Seminary is hard work. You've received several syllabi already this week. I don't need to tell you that. But be careful to remind yourself that striving doesn't bring blessings. Those are the ones freely flowing from God. This is yet another way that seminary is doing a great job preparing you for what ministry is like, because it is shocking how many idols there are in vocational ministry. Is that right, Carolyn? And a huge one is to believe that it's up to you and you alone. That your own efforts produce the fruit. That your gifts are paving the way. Your skills, even the one you learned in seminary, are making it all happen rather than accepting the free-flowing blessings and the free-flowing grace of God by going to the spring again and again. And I know this because I've done it over and over again in my ministry. It is so easy in ministry to look out at a full sanctuary of people and pat yourself on the back for bringing them there. And then to look out at a post-COVID half or less than half empty room and be devastated with self-blame. It is easy to believe that a person who comes to you for counseling is improving because of your great wisdom and your gifts, only to find yourself devastated when they fall. Ministry is a wonderful vocation, but it makes a terrible God. I want to tell you that some of the best and most surprising moments in ministry are when the Spirit is flowing and you know you had nothing to do with it. All you can do is just step back and get out of the way and let God work. Don't let me mess this one up, God. What it's like to preach a sermon and know it's a flop and find out that God's word blessed someone through it. Or to have someone years down the road come up to you and tell you how God worked and you had no idea that they were even there or listening. I want to tell you, but I think that there's someone who could tell you better what it's like to experience a spring of living water in ministry. It's one of our Doctor of Ministry students named Ermi. He was asked to share a testimony of how God was at work in his context last month with his cohort, who are ministers from all over the world. And he was sharing this story on Zoom, and Emily and I happened to be in the room with those who were listening live, and he shared it, and I was blown away by the spring of living water flowing through this ministry, and I just have to let him tell you the rest. So we're going to watch a short video of Ermi talking about the living water. God is doing and what he has done in my context. 
so guys at work in my context. My name is uh, Ermi. Um, I live in uh, East Windsor, Connecticut. Um, so um, a member and minister of one local church, Crossroads Community Cathedral. And I wear two hats, one of a pastor, another one of an academician. So um, recently, uh, but first let me share my context. So here is my context. Connecticut, please do not confuse Connecticut with Kentucky because <laughs> Kentucky in Kentucky is um, in the Midwest. Connecticut is in the north. In the north is so uh, between sandwich between um, New York and Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So um, recently, we have students. Uh, this is my local church. Um, um, so. And this is uh, my church located in East Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, this is basically my, my, my family. I don't have a biological family members in the United States. So this is, this is my family. So, um, so we have students. I work for Southeastern University uh, as site director and also um, adjunct professor. So um, I took my students for a picnic to one of the parks in the state. It's called Bigelow Hollow State Park. It's located in Union, Connecticut. Um, so uh, this is me uh, in the back, <laughs> um, carrying my stuff to uh, the park. So the park has two ponds, and this is the largest pond, the largest and the, and, uh, the clean uh, one. One of our students, Joe Roche, decided to be baptized on the spot. We didn't plan it, uh, no baptism class. So which he said, I would like to be baptized. And who am I to, uh, to tell him not now? So I said, okay, let's do it. So we jump into the water. Um, so I baptized him. And there was this lady who watched the whole thing uh, you know, happening uh, in front of her, and there were individuals, there were a group of people actually uh, in the park who saw what happened and they sang this beautiful song led by one of our students. And this lady, uh, Diane, she jumped into the water, she got close to us and she began to ask questions. I said, so what's the significance of water baptism and stuff like that? So. Yeah, I answered her questions with the best of my ability and knowledge, and she admitted that she's an agnostic. Um, she said that she's on the fence, though. Um, so by the time we finish our conversation, she decided to follow Christ, and she jumped over the fence to the Christian section so to speak um, <laughs> yeah so this picture is a picture when we i'm old school i still believe in sinner's prayer um i'm sorry if you don't believe in that <laughs> so i led her in um in the sinner's prayer so she told us that she has a friend sitting on the beach um and she told us a little bit uh, history of what happened to him. And she asked if we could pray for him as well. I said, I would love to do that. 
And I also told her about my local church so she can come and connect with us. And I told her I'll give her my card uh, when we get out of the water. Um, so this is, I'm sorry, it's a big graphic. I apologize uh, uh, <laughs> the nature of it. But as you can see, I'm the one in the middle. I'm the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, this is Rob, okay? Rob, uh, the moment I sat in front of him, uh, their bench, he began to sob. Wow. And he told me what happened to him. He, he, his son, 11-year-old son, died on Thanksgiving Day. Um, I'm sorry. And um, two years after that, his wife uh, drank herself to death. So Rob got nothing to put his trust on, but blame God for what happened to him. I listened to him. I didn't try to answer his questions. I just listened. Uh, I empathized. And the Holy Spirit poured the story of Job into my heart. And then I shared the story of Job. By the time we finished, he decided to follow Christ. We prayed a sinner's prayer. So this is a post-sinner prayer picture, uh, just so you know. Um, then uh, we, he decided to come to church. We exchanged our numbers. And I'm still following up with them. Um, this, this happened in August 6th. Uh, I didn't plan it. We didn't plan it. We went there to have a picnic as a preparation towards uh, the beginning of the full uh, academic semester. So is God at work in my context? Yes. And I believe that he's also at work in your context. And you have lots of testimonies to share. But thank you so much for listening. So you're, you're just on a retreat with a group of students, and one of them wants to be baptized suddenly, and people just start jumping in the water <laughs> and praying and confessing and pouring out their pain, and God is healing. And this is a spring, folks. There's nothing that you can do to pull this out of the ground. This is, this is the Holy Spirit at work, and I want you to know that he is still at work and I'm so glad you're here in seminary, but you didn't just come to sharpen your shovels. Look for the spring. Find the spring. One more thing about this. Ermi mentioned that he's in Connecticut. He's originally from Ethiopia. Just think about that for a minute. Remember a story in Acts 8 where Philip is running alongside a chariot where an Ethiopian man is reading scripture and says, What's to prevent me from being baptized right now? And Philip says, well, there's some water. Let's do this. Now think about that spring bubbling up in that chariot that Philip didn't plan. He didn't strive for. God was doing something. Think about that pouring out onto an Ethiopian. And think about all these centuries later, an Ethiopian coming all the way around the world ministering and baptizing. Here's the same spring. It's eternal. It's global. It's not for you. It's in you. 
and it flows to the whole world. Friends, this source is everything for us. Find the spring. Look for the spring. Drink from the spring of living water from Jesus.